Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Imagine talking to an audience of over a million people on the regular and without leaving your home doing the thing that some people call a waste of time, but this is your main vehicle for earning an income. An income stream that is so lucrative, you can use it to buy a house with cash. This is what YouTube gamers are doing for a living, and some of them are as young as 16 years. But they need managers, and they need bloody good managers. And Grace Watkins is the co-founder of Click Management. This is a Sydney-based gaming entertainment management company which represents some of Australia's biggest streamer gamers and they've been doing this since 2017. It's one thing to build an audience as a creator, but engaging with sponsors by that creator is an entirely different game and requires deep skills. And as you'll see from our chat, it's more than being a likeable person in a meeting. These partnerships require strategy, hard work, and sometimes some crazy PR stunts. And that's what Grace has been bringing to her clients for ages. So let's get into it. Grace Watkins, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you for having me. Just want to sort of dig around a little bit to know a little bit about you. Tell me about you. That's probably about the best way to start. <laughs> yes, I grew up in Melbourne. I'm the oldest of four. Um and basically studied com law, didn't have any interest in gaming or the world that I have since ended up in kind of 10 years later. Um, but yeah, studied com law, was going to go down kind of the traditional climb the corporate ladder path, started at a grad role at PwC. And then um, a couple of years in, basically started the company that I have now, Click Management, um, started it with my brother and my other business partner, Emma. And um, it kind of has led me down this whole other path that I certainly couldn't have predicted at the time, but um, very happy to be here now. You know, I often talk to people who are at university and they're doing, you know, I don't know, medicine or something like that, yeah. engineering or law, and um, they get a, not disillusioned, but they look at people like you and they say, wow, I didn't really need to do that law degree Yeah, and spend those years there. I, I look at what she's done um, and I could have gone and done that and saved myself a whole lot of money yeah. Um, in, in terms of fees and time and frustration. Um, did you ever think to yourself when you were doing your common law degree, <laughs> like, I'm wasting my time looking at all these other entrepreneurs out there, why am I, uh, am I not doing what they're doing? <laughs> well, um, it's funny you say that because I just had to pay back a very big hex bill, so that is all front of mind for me right now. Um, but I have to say not really. I think... When I started university, I 
put a pretty big value on formal education and probably, you know, a value that I hold to a lot less of a standard now um, through the experience that I've had and people that I've worked with over the last few years. But I think when I was at university, I really, really thought that I wanted to go down the corporate route and obviously the degrees that I was doing at the time were required for that. Um, I think since my, since, since changing and going into more of like an entrepreneurial role, my opinion on the requirement for formal education has changed a lot. I would say, I think I still really value mine. I feel like I gained so much and, you know, I'm kind of trying to stay of the mindset that if you're happy where you are now, you can't like regret or wish to change the, the path that led you here. But I definitely think my thoughts on formal education and the need for it have changed a lot over the last five years. I think um, I used to really think that perhaps, and, you know, it was a naive belief, but I used to really think, I think that that was a essential component of a recipe for success. And I think I've just been exposed to so many different kinds of people, so many incredibly driven, hungry people that um, have gone on to create amazing things for themselves. And I just think if you, if you have the right mindset, you know, sort of the formal requirements aren't going to stop you or enable you to achieve what you want to achieve. That's assuming, of course, you don't place as much value on being a banker or a, or a lawyer as totally. you do on what you're doing now. because it, so Oh, and, and that's not to say, obviously, if your dream is to become a doctor or your dream is to become a lawyer, then, yeah, yeah you got to do the uni. That's like essential part of it. But I think I used to really think that, um, you know, for anything that was going to be a really valuable thing and I think it's not, not necessarily the case anymore. It, is that more a reflection on the formalities that the tertiary education institutions put in front of you? Because, you know, like... When you're doing a commerce law degree, I don't know what it's like at Deakin, but I know what it is like at University of New South Wales. Yeah, they make you do humanity subjects. Yeah. They make you they they try to build a broad person in their mind. Yeah. Their philosophy is to broaden the person's education and they get you to do all sorts of subjects which are probably give you options to, you know, go down criminal law or go down um, business law or corporate law or tax law or whatever. So they try to give you options, but at the same time, you only end up taking one of those options, which basically means all the other stuff is shit. It's just wasted and time and money. It's money too because you, you yeah. have to pay for every subject. Yes. <laughs> you incur another. Oh, so, is this? Do you think your view is more a reflection on the, the structure of formal education today? Maybe. I mean, I I think kind of getting that broad experience can be really valuable as well. But I actually think that universities kind of have a challenge at the moment to keep up with how fast different industries are moving. And certainly, you know, most of the work that I'm doing now, there just wouldn't have been an option to do formal education for that. Um, Even when I studied like five to 10 years ago, there are so many new jobs that are being created all the time and there are going to be jobs that exist in five years that we couldn't even predict right now um, and therefore you can't necessarily be studying for them in a formal capacity. So that's definitely the spot I've ended up in. I absolutely don't regret my university degrees, loved my time at uni, loved like getting a whole taste of different things. I did criminal law. I like shadowed a criminal lawyer for a couple of years and and honestly, I gained so much out of that as well. But for particular roles, I think it's not it's not a bake or break. And if you if you haven't gone to uni, it's not something that when I'm hiring for people now, I don't place a huge amount of value on what they studied or um, if they studied. Could it be though? And by the way, I've, I'm sure I've had this observation leveled at me. I won't even call it a criticism. You know, white, male, privileged, 
educated, you can easily say that, Mark. It's a bit like becoming a politician and you're wealthy. You're wealthy, you become an independent politician and all of a sudden you become really green-centric and because, you know, you can be that way because you have the money mm. and you have the position. Could it be that you are now saying that because you have done very well, it's been levelled at me in the past? Yeah. And that is something that's talked about a lot. Definitely. I, I, yeah, that's a, that's a fair point to make. Um, you're not white male, you're white female, that's all. Yeah, all the other things, yeah, probably apply um, apart from the male bit. But um, I think that's a fair criticism to make but I just don't necessarily think the correlation is as tight as I thought it might have been at one point. I mean certainly my two business partners, they didn't finish university Half the people on my team I don't think finished university probably now or if I was talking to someone, um, I just wouldn't want them to get into the mentality where they feel as though whether or not they have a university degree or certainly how well they did in that university degree is a future measure of success. I think young people can beat themselves up so much in their really young years over like, oh gosh, am I closing off a pathway by not going to university? Have I closed off a pathway by not getting a distinction average in my commerce degree or something? Mm. And I just think that's not the case. I think it's more, I would say, around trying to have a growth mindset and not being bound by the circumstances that you've had or grown up in. And and I absolutely say that with privilege. Um, But I think it's more around trying to have a mindset where um, your destiny is like in your control. How does someone like you then get into what I consider to be in a looser sense or in a modern sense, the entertainment industry? I mean, I remember when I was an early teenager thinking the entertainment industry was so cool. I was like always, always thought that was really cool, but I was less interested in the people that were kind of the face of it, you know, like the singers and actresses. And I was more interested in the idea of like, who are the people behind the scenes, like pulling the strings to make this all happen? The power brokers. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I found that fascinating. I was like, there must be all these people behind the scenes that are making this stuff happen that no one sees. But, you know, I kind of got into the later years of high school and definitely through university and probably just didn't feel like the entertainment industry was an option and, um, you know, was really pulled into people around me that I I think had really good intentions but wanted me to probably choose a path that um, felt really safe, felt like it didn't close close you off or pigeonhole you too early. And so I kind of went the commerce law degree because I thought, oh, that's a good degree to have, doesn't close off any options you know, applied to the firms that people said were the right firms to go into. So I got a job. Yeah, I got a job at PwC. And then I think I got there, majored in accounting um, because I think people were like, that's a good major to do if you're doing commerce. I didn't even really like accounting that much. And then suddenly I ended up at an accounting firm because I feel like I'd followed this path of everyone saying like, oh, this is the right thing to do. And then I think I was probably six months into my time at PwC and I really liked it. I loved the environment of working with people. Um, It was really supportive. It really fostered learning. Um, They gave me incredible opportunities. But I was like, huh, (laughs) is this it? I'm like, do I actually even like accounting? Like why did I major in accounting? I I think I failed my first first assignment that I did for accounting. And I think I realised that I'd – kind of followed this path and not necessarily put the independent thought into what do I actually want to do? And that's hard to do when you're like 22, because who knows what you want to do? You have no idea what options are even out there. And I think that's like 
something a lot of people fall into probably. But I was really lucky to be surrounded by a couple people in my family who were really, really passionate about the work that they did. My mum, she um, followed more the corporate route but um, was has been super successful in her career and um, and truly was passionate about what she was doing. And then I had my brother who was also studying commerce law but when he was, you know, in his first year started creating a YouTube channel on the side and um, he'd found a lot of success with it. He'd grown an audience really quickly. And while he was still studying at the time, he was just so passionate about it. And what I was have, it? It was gaming. gaming. So, yeah, yeah, he'd starting a, started a gaming channel. And I remember we went down to our family farm in Victoria one weekend and it was like a Saturday afternoon. And I think I was like hanging out, sitting next to the fire, reading a book or something. And Elliot was on his laptop, my brother, working away, trying to build a new thumbnail for a video that he'd just released. And I remember looking at him and being like, damn, I wish I had a job that I was excited to do on a Saturday afternoon. You know, like yeah. it didn't matter that it was a Saturday. It didn't matter that like it was a weekend. He was excited to do it and he was constantly thinking about it. And I like was jealous of that. I think I was like, oh, I want a job that I like want to think about all the time and I'm constantly thinking about how could I be improving it or doing better and it felt almost like like a project for him, like it was fun. That's really cool. I kind of had this feeling where I, I, I just knew like I wasn't afraid to work hard. I didn't, I wasn't afraid of the idea of hard work but I really wanted to work on something that felt fun and felt like I was excited about doing all the time. That's probably what kind of, sprung my interest in trying to figure out something else I could do in addition at the time to the work I was doing. Like at a side yeah. I wasn't thinking about quitting, quitting my main job at that time. I was just thinking, oh, maybe there's something I can do on the side that would be fun that maybe like will look good on my CV if I try to go for a consulting job or something one day. You say gaming, that covers a lot of sins. Yeah. Um, what was your brother's gaming YouTube channel content? What was it about? So he was playing a game called TF2 at the time and he always loved gaming, like loved gaming. As a participant. Yeah, 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 just as like a casual, as like a teenage boy, you know, yeah. and I have vivid memories of my dad like holding his Xbox above our pool and saying like I will drop it if you do not quit playing this thing. Like he was addicted to it and and now <laughs> much to my parents' disappointment, he's turned it into a career. <laughs> so he's got the last laugh now. I'm kidding. They're actually really proud of him. He, you know, was kind of deep on these Reddit communities where they'd talk about particular elements of the game. And I think he was really good at it. And so people would say like, oh, how can you do this in the game? And he would, you know, try to instruct them. And then it got to a point where he was like, oh, it's going to be easier if I just record myself playing this and I'll put it on YouTube and then you can go watch it and I'll show you how to do this thing. So he was uploading these little videos that were just like how to do a certain move in a game or that sort of thing. And he was watching a lot of YouTube at the time, like uploading gaming content on YouTube wasn't a new concept. There were some people that were had built massive audiences that were doing it really well. Little bit by little bit, he just started to sort of make these videos a little bit more creative. He'd commentate himself doing something. He'd, he'd kind of play the game in a funny way, he'd do it in a silly manner and, and people loved it. Like people really liked it and they liked watching him. He kind of quickly built this audience and he didn't even tell, he didn't tell our parents, didn't tell 
anyone until he'd grown to like 50,000 subscribers, I think. And he was still at college. He was at ANU actually. Canberra at the time had really amazing internet, like the best internet in Australia. So it was great for gaming. Fast internet makes that really easy and it was really good for uploading YouTube videos as well. But he started to stop going to his university classes and was just staying in his dorm gaming. And then the college kind of realized like, hang on, you're just staying here. You're not even going to class. So like, you got to go. So then he had to tell our parents and he was like, Hey, I'm thinking I might just like defer university for a year, take a gap year. And he framed it as a gap year, but anyway, and then he and, never went back. And then, <laughs> and how did you then parlay that into because you and he, yeah. you and he together and click, right? Yes. So yeah. how did you, how did you, who, who was the one who said, okay, Let's just stop all this. You're doing a great job there, but uh, you can continue on. But let's let's build this business. About three months before I started at PwC, he'd come to me with an early idea, and he was like, "What if we were to create some sort of um, like marketing platform where brands could say, hey, I want to work with this influencer and get them to promote a product?'" You know, the basic concept of influencer marketing, which is a lot of the work that we do now. But he kind of had this idea, and he was like, "What if we create a platform, like a marketplace for this?" And I was like, I'm three months out from starting my grad role at PwC. Like, no way, I'm not giving that up for like this idea. So that kind of fell by the wayside. Probably a good thing. It wouldn't have worked anyway. I don't think it wasn't the right idea. But about eight months into my time at PwC, he had been working with um, a manager at the time who was just helping him negotiate a lot of the kind of commercial deals, ambassadorships, brand deals that he was doing at the time. You mean a talent manager? Yeah, talent manager. Someone was helping him negotiate his deals. Yes. Yeah. And it had provided a huge amount of value to him. Um, And he was like, hey, I've got all these other friends that are kind of in the same position that need the same help. And um, she didn't have the capacity to take them all on in an individual capacity at the time. So the three of us started the business. Three being you, him and? Emma, so his manager at the time. His talent manager at the time? Yeah. Who didn't have capacity? No. So you added capacity? Yeah, yeah. Um, And I had no experience Mm. in this, but I was fascinated by the entertainment world, um, which came back from, you know, my earlier time as a teenager. Um, And I just found the whole thing really interesting and I was really excited about it and I was like I just need to be a part of this somehow and um you know I didn't have very much bargaining power at the start there to be a part of it she certainly knew a lot more than me he was providing a lot more value to the business than me but I was like guys just let me and I'll 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 prove my value um and yeah that's how it started we we were all doing it sort of part-time um but then within a year I'd quit PwC, Emma, my business partner, she'd gone all in into the business. And I think, you know, what what got us really excited about gaming um, was that if you want to get into the traditional entertainment industry now, say music, movie, TVs, there's like a couple barriers to entry there that are that are pretty significant. You mean as in, a talent manager? As a talent manager, yeah, 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 and the business side of things. There's, there's like a couple barriers there if you're in Sydney, Australia, that are pretty significant. The industry is really in LA. The industries here in the, in Australia are quite small. The, the growth opportunities, the size of what you're able to do is just not as developed as it is in the States right now. So there's not many opportunities to kind of get in there and move and shake things quickly. Does that mean there's no big stars or, or not enough big stars? 
I just think the industry is too small it, and it, and it's quite domesticated um, for music and movies. Right. You know, there are a lot of musicians. It's hard to break into the US if you're an Australian musician and if you're working on movies and TV in Australia, it's hard to get that kind of global exposure if you're working behind the scenes on them. And then the second thing is that both those industries have really well-established structures. Um, you know, there are people that have been working in music and movie and TVs for decades in Australia. And so if you're, you know, young and hungry, um, like there's quite well-established structures there that are in place. And I think what I found really exciting about this whole gaming world is that it's a new entertainment genre. It's bigger than music and movies combined globally now um, by revenue. And wherever you are in the world is no inhibitor to the work that you're able to do. So for us, our business, like 75% of our revenue comes from the US. So I just think it's kind of amazing that we're able to be this team in Sydney um, that's working on, you know, an entertainment industry that feels really global and feels really borderless because all of it is digital. And the fact that it was such a wild west when we got into it definitely still is. There was no well-established structures. There was no, oh, this is the way you do things. There was a lot of room um, for us to kind of come in and be like, how do we want to create a business in this world? And um, what do we want it to look like? And what are the services that we want to offer? And how do we want to offer them? And um, there wasn't a particular playbook that we had to go by. That definitely makes things harder sometimes. And you're definitely kind of going by feel and working it out as you go. But I also just found the opportunity that lay there so exciting. What's interesting about that is that um, in terms of talent management, when it comes to, as you mentioned, to movies and music, um, there is a structure, there is a playbook. But when you have a playbook and a structure, it's controlled by the incumbents because they set the playbook and the structure up and yeah. they set up in such a way that it stops, it builds a barrier to entry for yeah. new, new players, which yeah. is the very thing you're trying to avoid, which is why it went into the gaming world. But equally on the, on the flip side, the gaming world doesn't have any structures or, as you said, a playbook, um, which means that whoever can create an efficient structure and a playbook there's no barrier to entry and effectively and it also means that you know you can not only survive but you can thrive in that environment you can actually yeah. be a leader irrespective of your age i don't mean your actual physical chronological age i mean the age of being in the business you, you can create shit on the way you can make some mistakes but you can, the industry is much more forgiving you're in the area you're going in because i mean mm. i've seen that in banking too by the way i just thought that in the early days of my wizard business there was no nothing to tell me as a non-bank lender what i should do there is today, but in those days it wasn't. So I could pretty much create it on my, on my way through. It's much harder now, though. Um, so in terms of, but I, I just want to just fold back a little bit. Um, who came up with the name Click? You know what? It wasn't a very interesting story. I think we paid someone like five hundred dollars to do a basic branding for us at the start, um, and we they sort of came up with the name and we were like, yep, that works. We'll take it. Um, I wish I had a better story. I wish I was like, yeah, it was so creative, great name, but and then <laughs> wasn't it wasn't the case. Well, I'm disappointed. Um, and, and then, <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and then in terms of your initial talent, not your yeah. initial talent, but the talent that you try to manage, how did you get your first talent? Well, we were really lucky because we had my brother Elliot who was, you know, a part owner of the business and could really advocate for the value of management. I think having someone that had 
that was a creator himself and that had massively benefited from having management, he was so valuable in being able to go out to market. And when we were talking to people and trying to pitch them this idea, most of these people had never had management before. Um, and he was able to say like, hey, here's, here's all the value that it's added to my career. He became your advocate, but how did you do that? Actually, I remember we were at a coffee shop. We were at a, we used to go to this coffee shop all the time called Kawa in Surrey Hills. That was like where we would just meet up every, every week and I'd, um, sneak out of PwC and go to Kawa. Was that a haunt though for gamers? No, not, not for gamers. I don't know why we picked that cafe, but that was where the three of us would always hang out. And we went there. And I think when we were building the initial business model and we would, and I say business model, it was like a, it was like a notepad, like back of the serviette kind of, can we actually make this work? What do we think the numbers are going to be? And it was sort of like, okay, let's create a little hit list of like five to seven. I think maybe we had seven talent that we were like, they would be our ideal people to kick off with. Yeah. They were people that we thought were creating great content. They'd already built an audience. So we knew that they resonated with a group of people. How did you do your research? Who did the research? You, your brother, um, your Emma, All of your us, partner? all of us together. I think Elliot was pretty influential. And actually, if I think about it, if I think about it, there was a game at the time called Overwatch that had just been released. It's a big, it's a big game. It's um, owned by Activision Blizzard, um, which who are a big developer. And that was, had just been released. And there was a group of content creators online that were kind of growing, making that content because people wanted to watch it. It was a new game. So they wanted to find people that were that were good at the game, that were fun to watch. And so he was Elliot, my brother was playing that game and he had a little group of friends that he would regularly play with. And we really just signed that group. Um, and it was a really, um, in hindsight, I think it was a smart way to start because they had a little bit of momentum going behind them already. So there was a, quite a bit of inbound interest on those people from the get-go. But um, I think we just yeah, reached out to them and had a few conversations. And I'm trying to think back to this time. You know what? It was right around when there was a big gaming convention happening in LA. And actually we flew them all out to LA to go to this you gaming convention. Out. Yeah. Well, not me. I didn't have any money at the time, but I think Elliot put in like 10 or 20 grand of money and we just put it all straight to flights. And but we, you made a big bet. Yeah. We made a bet. Yeah. 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 That's how it kind of kicked off. And, and, and that was it for the first year. We basically had a group of like seven talent and that was what we focused on. That's when I was still working at PwC sort of full time. They kind of let me go down to half half time. And then, um, about a year after we started, we had this idea to create this content house. So we'd seen this concept overseas where people would get a bunch of big creators into basically a mansion over there and create an environment where they could regularly collaborate on content and collaborating on content is a really, really fast way to grow online. It's nearly like a reality show though. Basically yeah. like a modern day reality show. Yeah. yeah. And we were like, this would be really cool to do. It was right when um, Fortnite had just released, which not sure if you've heard of that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, no idea. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's like one of the biggest games um, in the world now and it was just when they'd released. So we had a group of like, again, like five or six creators that were creating content on that game and they were growing, their audiences were growing and we were like, if we could get these guys in a house, that would be amazing. We <laughs> kind of... We're like, let's, let's do this. And again, really had no idea what we were getting ourselves in for. And I remember like going to probably like 
25, 30 different house inspections trying to find a house that would work. And it was funny because I was like 25. We were going to these like six bedroom houses being like, yeah, we're going to rent this and put a bunch of 20 year olds in it. And they're going to make video gaming content. And is the internet strong enough to be able to do that? And these real estate agents were like, no one's ever asked us that before. (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? But we ended up finding this house in Darling Point, just around the corner, renting it. And the rent was crazy. It was like $10,000 a week or something. Actually, in hindsight, I have no idea why we thought that was a good idea because we did not have nearly enough money in our bank account to actually cover that for more than maybe like a month or two at the time. But I think we just thought it was going to work. I think we really felt like if we did it right, it would work. And that was definitely that definitely felt like the biggest bet. It was a terrifying contract to sign because the business had been around barely a year and then suddenly we're signing a lease for a year on like a house that's like eight to $10,000 a week. Like it was crazy. Whoa, this is such a big commitment to the business. But we did it and, um, yeah, I quit PwC and we moved into the house like the next week. Yeah. I just wanted to take a quick, quick break. When I come back, though, I want to talk about this a little bit more about this concept of taking risks, taking bets, and then following your instinct because there's no research around this stuff. Yeah. I, I think that's really important to explore because yeah. it seems to me that you've taken two big bets that you've disclosed to me so far and both have paid off, but they were they were bets where you created a honeypot, honeypot for both audience and talent. Yeah. Let's talk about it when we come back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I find it quite fascinating, the concept of creating a honeypot. And whilst you say it was a risk, and by the way, the same applied when you sent your talent over to America, is again creating an an attractive thing for others to see that you're doing. But it's not going to be hard to get the talent to do it because to them, particularly young gamers, (laughs) they're going to America. They wouldn't ordinarily get an opportunity to do that. And they're going together, hanging out. So all of a sudden you've created this same concept with, um, you know, with your talent inside a house and not how to get a talent. If you say, listen, you're going to be staying in that bedroom with that ensuite bathroom, with that view, with that cool swimming pool in the middle of Darling Point, which you would never normally get to stay in. And by the way, you're going to be hanging out with your mates yeah. or, or, or like-minded people at least. Um, and that sort of, not frenzy, but that um, concomitant 
group of individuals and characters and characteristics um, creates a show. It's yeah. like modern day reality. And wh- wh- why do why do we watch modern day reality? Because we're sort of fascinated by how people interact and they're living yeah. in a life that we could not normally live in, so mm. to speak. Um, you've done the same. You create a little reality show which becomes your content. I mean it's more probably not just about the gaming than it's about watching how everybody yeah. interacts. Did you know that was going to happen at the time or was that something evolved with you? I think I knew, yeah. I mean, I think that kind of underpins why people love to watch YouTube, TikTok, social media. I think there's like a really kind of interesting voyeuristic almost element there where people are watching people that look like them, you know. This isn't like the Kardashians. They haven't grown up in an environment that is like totally removed from reality. It's like these people have grown up around the corner from you. They've grown up like in really similar environments. And in many ways, what is fascinating and why people love watching creators on YouTube, TikTok, all these social media platforms is because they really hit this balance of relatability and aspiration as well. And it's like, you could be watching these gamers and they're just playing video games in their bedroom. Maybe like you are or they're just making content with their friends and it kind of looks like your group of friends. But at the same time, you also know they're making millions of dollars and, yeah, they're making content in their bedroom, but it's a bedroom in a, you know, multi-million dollar mansion in Darling Point. Like that's totally unrealistic as well. What people love about watching social media is it feels like a friend, but there's also this element where it's like, whoa, you've been able to turn your hobby or what you do every day into a career. And that's obviously really interesting and really aspirational for a lot of people. That aspirational, relatable balance is what I think draws people into content and social media and user-generated content in general. If I went back to when your brother first started his YouTube series, and it was more instructional, but he did it sort of, you said he did it in a funny way. Yeah. Um, which means he added his personality to yeah. it. But, so it's not boring instruction, but it's still instruction because people were wanting to know how do you play this game, what do you do? Yeah. You know, how, how, do, how do I get an edge? You know, how do I get an edge? Everyone wants an edge, um, particularly when you're um, competing. It doesn't matter if you're a, a, a sprinter or a swimmer or a, a boxer or an MMA person. You know, you look at you look at YouTube for edge. You, how can I be reminded how to pin someone on the ground, whatever the case may be. Same in gaming. I was thinking about the UFC. I don't know if you follow the UFC, but the UFC is a is a global phenomenon. And yeah. um, where they've been very clever is, but when they're just two two boring fighters, they're doing all this technical stuff. They lose they lose audiences really quick. But when they get um, somebody like Tai Tuivasa, um, who gets up and does a shoey at the end of winning his his um you know his bout, um, that entertainment process that uh, that 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 piece of entertainment that UFC provides, um is the thing that drives UFC because there's a lot of people who watch UFC don't even know what the hell they're watching. They don't, yeah. they don't know anything about the technical stuff of jiu-jitsu. They don't understand it. They're not watching it for that reason. They're watching it for the entertainment value. Whereas they yeah. don't, Whereas boxing, they won't watch boxing because boxing is very technical and boring. Not to me but to a lot of audiences. There's something on UFC, you know, like what uh, Damon White's done is something quite brilliant. He's turned fighting into a, a really entertaining platform and obviously you can watch it all the mediums but – Sort of what you've done too, you've turned gaming into really t- entertaining. Yeah. Um, and, and it's episodic too. Totally. I mean, 
I don't think I did that. I think that's just how it's I, evolved. I, I'm not going to take no, but it's evolved. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you yeah, take yeah. advantage of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think gaming was kind of ahead of the game, mind the pun there, where um, a lot of people used to try and compare gaming to a traditional sport. And they'd be like, oh, so it's esports, it's like, a tr- or gaming is like, you know, footy, but digital. And it was always like, yes, but also more than that, you know, and there's this whole world of the entertainment side of gaming that I don't think people appreciate is like way bigger than the esports side of gaming. Um, you're actually kind of seeing a lot of more traditional sports take that approach now. I mean, like I was at the F1 in Melbourne over the weekend and it was like the biggest turnout. 450,000 people. It was packed. And I noticed how much the um, commentators were catering for an audience of people that had never been to a Grand Prix before. And I think you just need to look at the influence that like a show like Drive to Survive has had on that sport. And suddenly it's like you've drawn in a whole new group of people that they might not know, you know, like I certainly, my boyfriend's a diehard F1 fan, but like I might not understand exactly how like qualifiers for an F1 work or, you know, what's the difference between like a red flag and, you know, whatever. But you've found this whole group of people that care about the personalities behind it and they know who Danny Ricardo is and they care about, you know, the kind of competitive elements between like Max and Lewis and that sort of thing. You raise a, a significant point and there's a difference between esports gaming and esports gaming entertainment. Gaming is a really big umbrella term. Yeah. When you're talking about the kind of content that people consume in a gaming world beyond people actually buying games and playing them themselves or not necessarily buying given so many are free to play now, but playing the games themselves, there's lots of gaming content that people consume. So there's esports, which is the competitive gaming, which is much more akin to traditional sports. So that's maybe what you've seen in articles, it's a huge buzzword at the moment, this esports thing where there's teams and um, massive tournaments in stadiums over in the US and, you know, teenagers competing for multi-million dollar prize pools and that sort of thing. And those people are the best of the best. And there's the betting game. on those too. There's betting on there, those too. People make markets for it. Absolutely. So um, these the people that are in that world, they are the best of the best at the games. They're often... Um, fairly young, honestly, because their reflexes are so fast. They're really, really skilled. But then there's this whole world, which is what I would call more the entertainment side of gaming. And these are the people that are uploading like videos on YouTube or they're streaming on Twitch. And perhaps they're not the best at the game. Oftentimes they're really not the best at the game. They're probably good because they play so much, but they're not at that super high skill level, but they're playing it in a funny way. And maybe they're doing a challenge where they try to win a game of Fortnite by um, hiding in a bush the whole game, or they're trying to win a game of Fortnite by playing only with one hand or, you know, something like that. They're doing things in a really funny way. They're commentating themselves, playing the games, they're playing with friends. It's funny. It's really entertaining. And that is a huge, huge part of where the audiences lie. And actually the audiences on that entertainment side are so much bigger than the professional esports side. That's where there's a real distinction on what gaming is able to provide versus a traditional sport. So just on the professional side, so can you give me some perspective around the professionals and then give me some perspective around the 
social guys. I mean, the professional side, I don't want to, I don't want to downside down, um, downplay that at all because it's massive. There are millions of people that watch some of the big esports games like Dota or Fortnite. Um, and the prize money for those tournaments can be massive. You know, I think the biggest prize money in gaming right now is for a tournament called, um, the Invitational. And I believe the prize pool this year is larger than the prize pool for the U.S. Masters right now. Wow. It's really significant. A couple of years ago you saw um, Fortnite had their World Cup and like a 16-year-old won first place and won $3 million U.S. dollars. Like it's wow. it's wild um, and it's life-changing for a lot of these teenagers. Like the, the opportunities that are there are incredible. But, you know, what a lot of people that aren't so much in the gaming world don't understand is just how big the non-competitive side of gaming is. Let's call that social. Could we like social yeah, gaming? Yeah, yeah, entertainment gaming. Yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah. So on that side, these are people that have amassed audiences, hundreds of thousands or millions of people are watching their content every day. They may be uploading a video or they're streaming every day as a full-time job. Thousands of people are tuning in and they're making money through um, more advertising dollars. So if you go onto YouTube and you see a YouTube video, you might see an ad that pops up yep. before that video. You probably do. The YouTube takes part of the revenue from that ad and they distribute about half the revenue to whoever's page it's on, whoever's page the ad's showing. Yep. So creators are really incentivized to grow their audience and therefore grow the amount of revenue that they're able to make. They're also making money through advertising deals or sponsorships, that sort of thing. And they might have merch lines or other product lines where, you know, people that watch them every day want to go and buy a hoodie with their name on it or something like that in a basic form. Yep. And that can be massive on another scale. Like the top, the top creators there are earning millions of dollars a year and there's a lot of them. It's huge and the opportunities that are there are just really, really significant. So where does click management fit into those two scenarios? We really represent the more entertainment social side of right. gaming. Um, we do a little bit with esports, but I think I find the kind of social entertainment side of things really interesting because these are people that have built loyal audiences. The way that they're able to speak to an audience and um, communicate products that they like or yeah, have that kind of word of mouth effect is really powerful. What do you do for these particular talent? So, so what would you negotiate for? Oh, a lot of the deals that we're negotiating on a day-to-day -day basis are sponsorships. So it might be a particular product um, that's wanting to promote to an audience. And, and as I said, where I think gaming's really interesting is that we're able to reach this demographic of people that is otherwise quite difficult to reach through traditional advertising. And that is young men, you know, a lot of Guys now, you know, out-of-home advertising is not as powerful. They're probably using an ad blocker on their computer. Young people in general are just being exposed to thousands of advertising messages per day. And I think young audiences are really smart on what ads look like. They know what an ad looks like. They know when they're being sold something. You know, if you're able to access those audiences in a way where, you know, if I want to watch your videos every day, I'm clicking on your videos every day. I feel like I know you, you know, I know what you like. I know the habits that you have every day. I know the kind of clothes you wear, the games you play, the music you listen to. So if you're going to recommend me a product and say, hey, Asus has come out with a new gaming laptop and it's perfect for when I'm traveling and I'm able to, you know, game on the go and create videos on the go, that is so much more powerful as a marketing tool. And the kind of brands that we're able to work with now 
have spanned so far beyond gaming, which I think is really exciting. You know, we did a campaign a couple of weeks ago with Uber Eats and Maccas. We're doing some stuff with HelloFresh at the moment. We've done um, using stuff with gaming clothing talent. brands. Yeah, 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 using, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A common misconception is that maybe gamers can only communicate about gaming products, but I just think that's not the case. And when you look at the numbers now on how many people are playing games on an everyday basis or a week-to-week basis of young people, when you think about what a gamer looks like, there's kind of this traditional idea that it's like, oh, a teenage boy in their underwear in a dark room in the basement of a house, you know, and that's just not the case anymore. I mean, there's probably that too, but um, there are there are a lot of people that that don't fall into that bracket and gamers want to know about, you know, what kind of tech products they should be buying, what music they should be listening to, you know, what food they're going to be eating and that sort of thing. And so there's a huge, it's just, a, it's a massive audience to be so able to reach. Click management, do you, would it be fair to say that you sit between, let's call them the media buyers who represent the advertisers. Yeah. Um, and uh, the media buyer who's representing a brand comes along to you perhaps and says, we want to reach this audience. Um, we have this product. We want your talent that you represent to um, talk about this particular product. Do you as an organisation sort of um, check the product suits your talent? In other Definitely. words, yeah. Yeah. And, and then you, and you place it amongst the talent that it suits. So yeah, you're yeah, curating yeah. these things, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. And I would say traditionally that was more what a deal would look like as a brand would come to us and they'll say, hey, we've got this product or we've got this idea, we want you to do this. Now we're getting involved generally a lot sort of higher up in the piece where we're really trying to actually craft what these campaigns look like. We worked with Benefit Cosmetics last year, obviously not a brand that you would typically associate with gaming, but they really wanted to kind of have a presence in an audience that maybe they're not typically reaching, which is, you know, girl gamers. And so they came to us and they were like, how would you do, how would you approach this if we want to authentically reach this audience? And so we, you know, created a whole campaign. We had um, a big Fortnite tournament that all of the big girl gamers in Australia took part in. They were all creating content, was really super inclusive and fun and felt really organic to gaming and felt great to the brand as well. In terms of you know, how you keep your clients, what's your your model for retention of your assets? That's your, your inventory, your client, your talent. You know, I don't have any sort of secret sauce there. I think we genuinely just try to do a great job. We try to bring them a lot of value. And I think that is a lesson that I learned, um, you know, from when I was at PwC. Um, they were obviously providing professional services in a totally different world. But um, one thing that I feel like they always drilled into the staff was how are you providing value to um, your clients and how are you going above and beyond on that? And I so, love that. I just love that so much. Yeah. You know why? Because I have this thing about competency is not enough. Value add is the most important thing. Yeah. So you don't just say, oh, yeah, we'll execute it as a competent organisation. Yeah either to your talent or to the media buyer who's acting on behalf of the brand, but you say, we'll value add. We'll bring you some ideas. We'll come up with a, a way to do this. And, and what's interesting is you learned that at PwC, going yeah. right back to your very first job, which you weren't that excited about. Now you're blending excitement, doing what you love, and it's a really big growth industry, with all those things that you learned maybe through university or through yeah. those people who influenced your parents watching your mum work hard and uh, and adding value to your to your client or adding value to your product. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what I try to bring myself back to because the industry changes fast and talent can change fast and we definitely haven't got that perfect the whole way through. It's been, you know, an education and a degree in and of itself trying to run a business in your 20s. Like it has been the biggest the biggest teacher for me by far. Yeah, just honestly just try to do a good job. Just try to like yeah, yeah. provide value, add value um, and support to our talent and to the brands that we work with as well you know gaming can feel like and I'm sure I don't know maybe for a lot of your audience that listens to listens to the podcast that it can feel like a bit of a foreign world and it can feel like there's a whole language of things that you need to understand to be able to um, access it I don't come from a gaming background and so I really love being able to um talk to people and help them understand it. It's it's funny because today I read a post from a guy that I've on Instagram called and he's called the Fight Dietitian and um, he's been on the show. And and he he's over in America with Alex Volkanovsky who just won the UFC title or, or defend his title again. And he, he goes around the world with lots of fighters. And um, he wrote on his post, there is no secret sauce. Basically following your set of rules in your case, what you do in your business and Volkanovsky's case, what he does in his business about in terms of maintaining weight, being able to weigh in, but still be healthy. There's no secret sauce. He's not sitting there, um, you know, getting, you know, his feces from somebody else and injecting him into his stomach or eating some drink, some weird green drink or whatever. He just sticks to a very basic program and continues to stick to that very basic program, which works and he keeps all the whole time, Volkanovsky is trying to improve your skill base. In your case, you're trying to make sure that your clients, uh, you're creating things that your clients, because you've got two sides of clients, you've got the, the brand and you've got your talent, you're making sure that you keep adding value, you know, keep improving. And I really think that's, re- to be honest, is a, a big statement and it is really the, the answer to the question, what, you know, what's your secret? And my secret is there is no secret. Yeah, I love that. I also find that really kind of empowering as well because I think, you know, a couple of years ago, less so now, but like definitely over the period of starting a business, um, you know, there were times where I felt like, oh, gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing or I've never been in this environment before. I don't know how to handle it. How And I was, you know, looking to other people and thinking like how are they managing this or how have they been able to build their business like that and feeling like, oh, I don't. I don't have the experience to do it. I find it quite empowering to think about the fact that like generally there is no secret sauce and these people aren't necessarily that much smarter than you. They've, you know, in in which case you're just as capable as anyone else. So that's, I, I actually, I love that. I find that really empowering. Well, just like Alex Volkanovsky, the world champion, um, you've got to keep defending your patch. And, yeah. Uh, I wish you the best and can, to defend your patch and Thank what you've you. created. Well done. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley and production assistants Jonathan Leondis. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 